Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to our Bible study podcast. I want to begin today by telling you what I've been planning for some time. Beginning next week on this podcast, Lord willing, I want to begin a series of studies entitled Living in the Last Days, What the Bible Says About the Signs of the Time and the End of the Age. What does Scripture say about things like the rise of the Antichrist, the onset of the Tribulation, and the impending return of Christ? We have all felt sick as we've seen the horrendous events unfolding in Eastern Europe, and it reminds the world that we're only inches away from some kind of global cataclysm, a force of evil, of truly frightening dimensions, is on the move through our planet right now, and things may be shifting into prophetic gear. I want to speak on the subject of what theologians call eschatology, which is the study of the last days of earth. What does the Bible say about the end of the age? This podcast series will accompany the release of my book, The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. And I would like to ask you to consider pre-ordering this book now wherever you buy your books. Pre-orders help us so very much in launching the message of this book. It's called The 50 Final Events in World History. The release date is April. Now, the podcast episodes that will begin next week, I don't plan for them duplicating the contents of the book. Instead, they will provide additional prophetic information from all over the Bible, and I think that you'll find it to be, as I do, absolutely fascinating. Well, all of that begins one week from today. Now, on this episode, we're finishing our five-part study of Psalm 139, so I'd like to take a moment to review it all for you. In an earlier episode, I suggested that we can open our Bibles to Psalm 139 and take a pencil or pen and write over it these words, What God Thinks of Me. This is one of the Bible's best passages for dealing with self-image and self-esteem and reassuring us of what God really thinks about us. There are only 24 verses in this psalm, but the personal pronouns I and me and my occur 48 times. The words you and your occur 28 times. So this is a very intimate psalm, and yet the writer frames everything around four of God's almighty attributes. In other words, in Psalm 139, David shows us how these four qualities of God intersect with the qualities of our lives in the most personal of ways. First, he focuses on God's omniscience, that is, his total knowledge of everything that exists, including everything there is about me and you. So let me read from the Living Bible one last time these verses, Psalm 139, 1 through 6. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. 
you know when I sit or stand, when far away you know my every thought. You chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest. Every moment you know where I am. You know what I'm going to say before I even say it. You both precede and follow me and place your hand of blessings on my head. This is too glorious, too wonderful to believe. I summed all of that up by saying in an earlier podcast, the one who knows you best loves you most. Now, in the next six verses, verses 7 through 12, David deals with God's omnipresent, that is, with his constant presence around us. It says, beginning with verse 7, I can never be lost to your spirit. I can never get away from my God. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the place of the dead, you are there. If I ride the morning winds to the furthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me, your strength will support me. If I try to hide in the darkness, the night becomes light around me, for even darkness cannot hide from God. To you, the night shines as bright as the day, darkness and light are both alike to you. In other words, God's omnipresence fills the universe, but his relational presence is closer to us than we can imagine. We can practice the presence of God day and night. Now, in the next six verses, verses 13 through 18, David deals with the subject of God's omnipotence with his creative power. He said, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit them together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. It is amazing to think about. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. You were there while I was being formed in utter seclusion. You saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. How precious It is, Lord, to realize that you are thinking about me constantly. I can't even count how many times a day your thoughts turned toward me. And when I awaken in the morning, you are still thinking of me. To paraphrase, Lord, you made me as a unique person, and whether I'm sleeping or awake, you are still thinking about me. You have a specific plan for my life. Your power is overshadowing me. Well, now today we're coming to the last six verses and to the conclusion of our study of Psalm 139. And the final verses, 19 through 24, deal with the attribute or the quality of God's righteousness. There is a dramatic shift here that really seems jarring to us. I think that you'll sense that. So let me read these verses and then we'll discuss them. Surely you will slay the wicked Lord. Away, bloodthirsty men, be gone. They blaspheme your name and stand in arrogance against you. How silly can they be? O Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I be grieved with them? Yes, I hate them, for your enemies are my enemies too. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test my thoughts. Point out anything you find in me that makes you sad and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Well, when we back up and look at this, it seems that these verses are providing the occasion or the reason for David's writing of this psalm. He was evidently being attacked 
or criticized or tormented or threatened by some people who are described here as being wicked, bloodthirsty, blasphemers, arrogant, enemies of God. And David was upset and anxious. He was beside himself. Perhaps the nation of Israel was under attack by the armies of an enemy the way that Russia is going into Ukraine. Or maybe this was a personal attack against David by some political enemies or by even members of his own family. In any case, he prayed, as this is given to us in the New International Version, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. Well, as I said earlier, and I am I'm having a hard time getting this off my mind. We are all watching the heartbreaking, maddening news of Russia's illegal, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And I confess, I feel a certain hatred, and we'll come across that word a little bit later, but a certain hatred toward men like Vladimir Putin. Is it wrong to feel that way? And I think it all depends on how we define the word hatred. I do wish that Putin would have a Damascus Road experience, that he would come to Christ and become a new person. It is not impossible for that to happen, and we should be praying about it. But if he refuses, I'll have to say that I am offended with what I think is righteous indignation by his arrogance, wickedness, cruelty, oppression, by his loathsome attitude and actions. I hate what he is doing with all of the hatred I have within me. His evil is terrifying to watch, and it leads to the pitiful destruction of so many innocent men and women and boys and girls. And if people like Stalin and Hitler and Putin, I'll put them all in the same category, if they can escape the justice of God, then something is wrong. David is not quite sure why God is allowing these people to have the upper hand or to keep coming after him. He said, if only you, God, would slay the wicked, why aren't you dealing with these people away from me, you who are bloodthirsty? And we can understand his sentiments. He is being honest in his prayers towards God. And it says in verse 20, in the New International Version, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. In other words, the psalmist was saying, these enemies are not so much attacking me as they are attacking you, Lord. And that's true. Jesus said something similar in the Gospels. He said, if they hate you, it will be because they hate me. There's a very interesting story about this. The British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge related his conversation with Svetlana Stalin, the daughter of Joseph Stalin. Muggeridge and Svetlana were working together on a BBC project, and according to Svetlana, as Stalin, her father, lay dying, plagued with terrifying hallucinations, he suddenly sat halfway up in bed, clenched his fist toward heaven, and then he fell back on his pillow dead. His rebellion was a hatred and an anger and a rebellion against God, and there is an iron cable of evil that pierces through and links together all of the evil dictators and despots of history 
But we have to remember the same cable runs through us as well because we are all sinners with evil within us by both nature and choice. But the blood of Jesus Christ has the power of dissolving that cable and setting us free. But when people reject the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, they are left with nothing but this impaling iron cable that drags them down into hell and into judgment and into separation from God. And so in verses 21 and 22, David brings up this idea of hatred. He brings it right to the surface, and he says, Do not I hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Now, at first glance, this seems to conflict with the teachings Jesus gave in his Sermon on the Mount, where he told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who despitefully use us. And the very idea of hating someone or of God hating someone is very jarring to us. I remember many, many years ago visiting a man in his home who wasn't quite ready to give his life to Christ. And one of his objections was that somehow he had opened his Bible to the book of Malachi. And the book of Malachi begins with these words, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And the Lord said, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. There were two brothers. And it says, God loved one but hated the other. And this man could not understand how a God would love one brother but hate the other. And he didn't want to follow a God who hated people. And that was a major objection for him. I can understand that objection, but it underestimates the perfections of God. If God does have the capacity to hate, then his hatred would be as pure and as perfect and as good and as appropriate as his love. Now, when we think of hatred, we think of a personal, emotional animosity and resentment that rages up inside of us. We think of personal scorn and spite. But that may not be the best way to define the word hate as it relates to Almighty God. In his theological dictionary, Jeffrey W. Bromley describes this word as it relates to God saying it is, quote, not emotional hatred, but a disavowing of evil and of those who commit it. Let me repeat that. Brumley, in his very well-respected theological dictionary, which I have, says that when it refers to God as hating someone, it is not referring to emotional hate, but to a disowning of evil and of those who commit it. For example, in the case of Jacob and Esau, there is no sense when you read through the gospel, through the book of Genesis, where the story is told that God had any emotional preference for one over the other, but one of these boys and not the other was chosen to be in the lineage of the Messiah based on how God knew they would turn out. And Malachi used those words love and hatred to describe those judicial choices. There's another book, it's called The Hard Sayings in the Bible, written by a series of brilliant Bible scholars, including Walter Kaiser and F.F. F. Bruce. And in their comment on Malachi 1, they said, quote, when scripture talks about God's hatred, 
it uses a distinctively biblical idiom which does not imply that Yahweh exhibits disgust, disdain, or a desire for revenge. But there are clear objects meriting God's hatred, including evil, all forms of hypocritical worship, and even death itself. And they went on to say, God does not experience psychological hatred with all its negative and sinful connotations. And really, I think that one sentence says it all. When the Bible says that God hates someone, and it doesn't say that often, but occasionally, such as in Malachi, you'll see it, and it's alluded to here in Psalm 139, or when a writer in the Bible says, I hate someone, and they're speaking with righteous indignation, then they are not so much as uh, describing a psychological hatred with all of its negative and sinful connotations. They are instead speaking with moral dimensions of separating ourselves from that which is harmful and causes sin and suffering and oppression in the human race. Well, here in Psalm 139, David never says that God hates anyone. He is wondering simply why the Lord is allowing those whom David hates to live. He said, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Do not I hate those who hate you, Lord? I have nothing but hatred for them. Well, the lesson for us in all of this is to find the balance of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way that we deal with people who are evil and who are fostering evil on others and on our planet. They are invading our righteousness, and they are violating the righteousness of God. And so Jesus told us to love them. He said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your neighbors and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? But later, in the same message, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So as far as I can process it, this is the balance. God loves people. He loves everyone. And so should we, even when they do wrong things. We should love them, praying that they will repent. But if they will not repent at some point, the righteousness of a just God will repel them backward right into judgment. Evil will not win the victory. Wickedness will not prevail. Sin and suffering will not endure. And if we don't hate people, at least we recognize a righteous indignation for the evil within them that is perpetrating violence and suffering in this world. We can love people and yet be zealous in our hatred of evil. And this is what David is talking about. He has said, Lord, you are righteous. Your righteousness is absolutely stunning and perfect, and it cannot budge. And I'm surrounded by unrighteous people, Lord. I need for you to deal with them. That's an appropriate prayer. We can fight as hard as we can in the strength of the Lord to keep the righteousness of God aflame in our lives. 
We can strive by God's strength to maintain our own personal holiness. We can ask God to help us, and then we look at the world around us, and we may love the people with redemptive love, but we hate what is happening, and we say, Lord, how long until you deal with it? That's what David is saying here. He is talking about the righteousness of God, the way it intersects with his life for the way he wants God to deal with it and for the way he needs help with his own attitude in the midst of it. Well, now he comes to the very end of the psalm. And this is where he says, Lord, I really do need help. All of this is overwhelming me. And we come to one of the richest prayers in the Bible. It's very easy to memorize and very important to offer. He says in verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I remember having a friend in Bible college who one day looked unusually disconcerted and I said, Steve, what's wrong? He said, I prayed the prayer at the end of Psalm 139, and I asked God to shine his spotlight on whatever was wrong in my life, and I'm overwhelmed with what I've seen. I think I'm going to have to say, Lord, shut off the light. Lord, shut it off. Well, I don't think that Steve ever prayed for God to shut off the light because he went on to become a very powerful Christian leader. I think he always wanted God to assess him and help him, but it honestly does take some courage to offer this prayer. Recently, I summoned up my courage, and I've been praying this prayer, and what I'd like to do as we end our study is to walk through these two verses and glean as much meaning from them as we can. Verse 23 says, Search me, O God. And here, Psalm 139 comes full circle. In fact, if I were teaching this psalm in a classroom, I would draw it as a circle with four different segments. And the last segment about God's righteousness and the concluding prayer would bring us right back to the beginning. So go back and look at verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and known me. He says, Lord, you have searched me, you know all about me. And then he goes through all of these qualities of God and how they intersect with his life. And he ends by saying, oh, Lord, keep on searching me. It comes back full circle because this is not a one-time prayer. It's the constant prayer of the believer. It's a little like having our annual physical. I've gone back to my same doctor year after year and said, doctor, examine me and see if there's any sign of disease or illness and help me to stay as healthy as possible. This has been a regular routine and rhythm of my life. In fact, I need to schedule my next physical. And I will go so far as to say that I might not be alive today if I hadn't had this habit in my life because some years ago, one of the tests came back with something very disturbing, but the doctor caught it very early, far too early for it to develop into something worse, and we've been constantly monitoring it since then. Well, our great physician who knows us best who loves us most, who created us in our mother's womb, who is thinking about us constantly. He wants to keep you as healthy emotionally and spiritually and even physically as healthy as possible. And this is a prayer for ongoing spiritual health. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Christians should never suffer from heart disease. And I'm talking about our innermost hearts, our spirits and souls and psyches and personalities. So spin up your courage and pray this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And the next phrase says, test me and know my anxious thoughts. David had been suffering from anxiety. This prayer is the result of anxious feelings that were overtaking him. His nation was facing invasion, or maybe he was facing pressure from certain evildoers. We don't know the specifics of the background of this psalm, but he was having some panic attacks. He was anxious. And the word that is used here for anxious thoughts in the Hebrew is the same word as is found in Psalm 94, verse 19, which says, when anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. This is so insightful. It means that when anxiety takes over our hearts, something is wrong somewhere within us. God does not want your heart to be overwhelmed and ruled by anxious thoughts. We're tempted by them, but we shouldn't be dominated by them. And so we need to learn to say, Lord, search me. See what's wrong with my faith. See what's wrong with my heart. Study my anxious thoughts. Yes, Lord, I do have the wicked. I do have the bloodthirsty. I do have those with evil intent, those who hate you. But Lord, there are urgent and terrible problems, but anxious thoughts I know are not the godly response to it all. Show me how to recover my trust, my peace, my strength, my poise, and my focus on you. But of course, there are more than there, there is something in addition to anxiety that can sicken our hearts and spirits. There is sin in all of its many subtle forms. And so the psalmist goes on to pray in verse 24, see if there is any wicked way in me. Now just imagine praying that, Lord, is there anything, large or small, anything at all, in me that is not pleasing to you. Will you show me that? You know, there can be a lot of things wrong with us without our realizing it. Again, let's go back to the physical analogy. It's possible, I hope this isn't true, but it's possible that right now you or I have cancer in our bodies. We don't know it. We may have undetected heart disease. We may have hypertension without realizing it. We may have diabetes, but it's not yet obvious. Well, the sooner we find out, the greater our likelihood of survival and of longevity and of good health. In the same way, there can be a lot of things wrong with our personalities that we simply cannot detect without the skill of the great physician. And so this is a prayer involving this very issue. We say, Lord, see if there is any offensive way in me. The implication is, Lord, please help me to correct anything in my life that is harmful or unpleasing to you. And then the psalmist ends by saying, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me paraphrase that. Lord, let me walk in utmost spiritual and emotional health along the pathway you've given me, uh, you, you have given to me through this earth and on to heaven. When I was in Bible college, a great church historian came to our campus to lecture. His name is J. Edwin Orr. And today I still have many of his books and his stories 
is one of the most curious stories, very unique, very unusual, of all of the men I've ever studied. He'd had a tremendous impact on Christianity in the 20th century. Uh, and so I met him and interviewed him in the lobby of our dormitory one afternoon for 15 or 20 minutes. And it was a very interesting exchange. I've written about it in one of my books. Well, I later learned that years before, in 1936, Dr. Orr had been involved in a series of gospel meetings on an island of the South Pacific off the coast of New Zealand. There had been an attitude of unusual expectancy about these meetings, and prayer meetings proliferated across the area. Many students came to Christ, and the area began overflowing with the testimonies of those who were being saved or who were being renewed in Christ. Well, one day, Dr. Orr heard four Aborigine girls sing a beautiful song entitled, The Song of Farewell. And the first words were, now is the hour when we must say goodbye. Well, the tune was so lovely, the Polynesian melody, that he just couldn't get it out of his mouth. And he began singing it to himself using the words from Psalm 139. And as he crafted these words into verse form, he jotted them down on the back of an envelope, actually while he was standing in the post office, as he later recalled, and they were first published in his book entitled All You Need. Well, his words and the music from that Polynesian song became a very well-known 20th century hymn, and I'm not going to sing it for you, but I encourage you to look it up and learn it from your music app. I've sang it many times, and it's a good way of ending this series of studies from Psalm 139 and a good way of learning to pray this prayer for yourself. The words by Dr. J. Edwin Orr say, Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. I praise thee, Lord, for cleansing me from sin. Fulfill thy word and make me pure within. Fill me with fire where once I burned with shame. Grant my desire to magnify thy name. Lord, take my life and make it wholly thine. Fill my poor heart with thy great love divine. Take all my will, my passion, self, and pride. I now surrender, Lord. Will you in me abide? Well, thanks for digging into the Bible with me and walking with me through Psalm 139, the psalm that tells us that God is always thinking about us. Well, remember also to go to your favorite book distributor, if you will, and check out my upcoming new release, The 50 Final Events in World History. And next week, we'll begin boring into what the Bible says about living in prophetic times, and I don't think that you'll find it boring at all. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio editing was by Courtney Warner. Print editing and blog posting by Sherry Anderson and Luke Tyler. Music by Elijah Rowe. Thanks for listening, everyone, and may God be with you until we meet again. Thank you.